0: Welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network, it's Liz Kelly. This week we launched a new show on the network called the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. Coming from the guys who brought you the fantasy football podcast, Danny Heifetz, Danny Kelly, and Craig Horlbeck will guide you through the fantasy football season, providing analysis on big picture conversations like weekly matchups, trades, and daily fantasy. The show will run every Monday and Wednesday throughout the rest of the summer, and will be helping you through the regular season as well. So follow and listen to the first episode of the Ringer Fantasy Football Podcast out now for free on Spotify.
1: This week's episode of the JJ Reddick Podcast with Tommy Alter. In a moment, we'll be joined by ESPN personality. How would you describe Bomani? It's like a
2: jack-of-all-trades. ESPN radio, podcast, TV, everything.
1: He's so talented.
2: Yes. Yeah, he's one of the, Bomani Jones, one of the smarter um, and more interesting people in media. Not just sports media, but all media right now.
1: I could also listen to him talk for hours. There's something so soothing about his voice. Some
2: people are just gifted gabbers. You know, they can talk yes. Poe can talk about anything. And he also is, and, he, and we'll, we'll get into this into the show, but he's extremely well-read. And so he's not just talking. You know, he's talking with some base of knowledge. Bomani has a
1: podcast, The Right Time with Bomani Jones. You can check it out uh, on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to your uh, podcast. It's always a good listen. I've actually listened to a bunch of episodes recently uh, just because I like hearing his voice. Tommy, today is a milestone for me. I think I might have mentioned to you this this to you yesterday, but today is the 100th podcast episode that I have done. I, I I knew I was getting close to 100. I checked yesterday. I did 40 with Yahoo. I did one with Uninterrupted, and this is my 59th podcast I've done with The Ringer. This is the 100th episode of whatever iteration this is. So how are you celebrating tonight I'm down in Orlando? Uh, we're actually uh, we in a little bit. We have optional shooting, no practice today. Optional shooting, and then we're going to go bowling tonight as a team. We rented out the some lanes. That'd be fun. Yeah. Is there um, is
2: stoked. there a is it like a massive alley? Have you been to the alley yet or no?
1: No, I haven't been yet. Who do you think the best bowler on the team is? CP apparently is like the best bowler in sports. I've heard it's he's like could be a professional bowler. <laughs> I believe that
2: that makes that checks out. I would guess I would guess Drew is the best bowler on your team.
1: I could see that. I feel like there was somebody talking about it yesterday that said they they typically bowl around 200, but I don't think it was Drew. We'll see. I'll, I'll report back. When's the last time you've gone? I haven't bowled in years. In years, I don't have time for that shit. What I've realized with this bubble is I've never had this much downtime. All the because, activities look.
2: you've never wanted to do,
1: you're just forced <laughs> to doing. I'm considering going fishing on a stocked pond. They call it a lake, but it, let's be honest. It's a pond. I mean, that's, how, that's the point I'm at. It's, there's so much downtime. We got basketball. It's, it's great basketball, you know, three four hours a day with film and treatment and all that stuff. But finding time to fill the other 10 to 12 hours is a, uh, is a challenge. So um, we're going to talk a little bit with Bo about, um, my experience uh playing in the scrimmages and and what that looks like uh we get into a really fun conversation about uh nitpicking nba greatness and and why we do it as uh, as fans so let's get into our conversation with lomani jones oh what's up man dude doing all right man how's the bubble the bubble is um the bubble's opening up a little bit, actually. Uh-oh. Is that good? <laughs> no, because um so we started playing games Wednesday, uh scrimmages Wednesday, right. and now we can uh go to the other hotels. So we're not just sort of quarantined in, in our own hotel. So actually last night TJ McConnell from the Pacers came over and had had some wine and, and uh some food with us. Drew's brothers were over here. So all, all three holiday brothers were at the table next to us. So it's like, you know, our, our crew our, went from like, you know, a hundred people that we could sort of like see to now, you know, the, the whole, all 22 teams. It's opening up.
0: I'm just looking forward to finding out like who really doesn't like each other. Right. Like that's, that's the part that I want to see about this. This is like everybody being trapped in an all boys school. Like I want to find out who it is that really has beef that the rest of us don't know about. you like, remember when Ray Allen and Kobe Bryant had that beef. And we just looked up one day and we're like, damn, I, I didn't know that you guys had a problem with each other. Oh, okay, cool. Like it would it's all gonna come out now.
2: It's full on like high school lunch, like lunch table.
1: Yes. I, I'm curious if it's gonna come out on the court. What was the, what was for you for both of you guys? What was the viewing experience like for watching these games at at the at the Wild War sports?
0: Oh, surprisingly normal. I watched uh some of Lakers and I've already forgotten who was out there with the Dallas. Lakers. Dallas, Dallas. Yes. yeah. No, it I think that, and I watched some baseball last night too. Like the people that are piping in crowd noise, it seems to work. I feel like spacing out the people behind the bench kind of gives this impression that there's a crowd there, you know, sort of. And I had no idea how thirsty I was for some basketball because I've never been one of these people like, oh, damn, we need sports. Oh, damn, we need some sports. I was watching a replay of a scrimmage that looks like it's being played in a ballroom at a hotel, and I was on it. I was there. Like, welcome back, guys. It's
2: amazing how important camera angles are to your, everyone's everyone's perception on this. Yes. Because they could, the, w- the way they shot that game last night and your game on Wednesday night, I I mean, there's clearly a difference, but it's super,
1: it was super enjoyable.
2: You know, I didn't have, there was, no, there was no part of me that was, from a fan perspective, was like, I don't want to watch this. This is weird.
1: I'm, I'm glad it was enjoyable for you guys. How about you? Because <laughs> <laughs> the experience was a little different. No, it was enjoyable, obviously. It, it was, first of all, I keep saying this, what the NBA has done to pull this off is incredible. It didn't feel like we were playing in a in a basketball gym. It fe- it feels like a movie set. It feels more like a Broadway stage than it does an arena. So everything is either blocked off or blacked out, and they've got these bright lights. And unlike let's say MSG uh, or or Barclays or uh, Staples Center when the Lakers play where they dim the lights and then the court sort of has all the light on it these lights are like I mean if you threw a ball up in the sky you'd hit the light there's they're super close so it feels really bright I think the, the two eeriest things for me as a player was when we came out for warm-ups and there's no crowd noise There's just silence and then on free throws that was the other part and I know Every team's doing something a little different and I've heard they're gonna start piping in some noise, but for our game it was dead silent when we were shooting free throws. And that was that was so eerie. The
0: the 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 eeriness of that quiet type stuff is there. Like I had not like I am a person who as a young mediocre basketball player, as you added more people, whether on the floor or in the crowd, I got worse. Like one on one, I got something for you. Two on two, we can do it. You get up to about four on four and I'm like, oh man, I'm gonna let somebody down. Right. And then you started getting people watching. Like, oh, so people are going to watch me let people down. Okay, cool. Like, it would have the opposite effect on me. Like, i wonder if there's some dude who all he's been waiting on is not having all these people watch him <laughs> and then suddenly going to turn into a 30 yeah. point a game score.
1: That's interesting. I, I, I haven't thought of it that way. I, I feel like I, I, this is the thing I keep going back to. And, Tommy, I've mentioned this on, on the podcast before. But the atmosphere for playoff games I feel like as we get into the seeding games, the regular season games, whatever you want to call them, there's going to be, we'll be sort of used to it by then, but when we get to the playoffs, you know, so much of what makes playoff basketball special is that give and take and that relationship with the crowd, and there's no home court advantage, there's no energy you can feed off, so that energy has to be supplied by the team, and that's it. And that's going to be, I think that's going to be a little different.
2: Are there um, shooting challenges with the
1: lights? Like, did it take a little while to get used to? I've requested that they they dim the lights just a tad. <laughs> Do you think other people have? <laughs> uh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard other people have. I've heard other people have. Because
2: it feels, I mean, that's super distracting to walk to to, you're used to, we talk about like depth perspective and stuff like that, to basically be in a position where you are, you're used to doing something your entire life. And then you get in there and it's like, you got this fucking jail bright light right in your face.
1: The other problem with our game was Jackson Hayes. We always send the rookie Jackson Hayes to the, um, the center circle for the captain's meeting. And normally the refs come out with three basketballs and I choose the basketball, the shooter always, or the point guard always has to choose the basketball. And for some reason they took the basketballs to the center circle at five minutes on the clock with Jackson Hayes and he literally chose the worst fucking basketball. <laughs> and I'm just like, so for the rest the rest of the game, I'm just talking shit to Scott Foster about his, you know, Jackson's choice in basketball. Like they, they could have done a better what job. Was the, like, what was the bench like? The bench is weird. So it's, you know, we're all spread out. We're in seats. We have a little cubby in our seats where we have <laughs> snacks and, uh, you know, gum if we want. We, 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 we request what's in the cubby and the water and, you know, I'm still like, I'm off the court now because I used to lay on the court and foam roll and, and all that stuff, but I'm like off the court now, like way behind. Uh, Alvin couldn't even find me when I had to check into the game because I was so far away. It's bizarre, it's really bizarre. I want to talk a little bit about the, the NFL and, the, and baseball. And I, to me, they're the test model for our next season. Because it seems unrealistic that we could bubble NBA players for six to eight months. So what baseball is doing and what I think football is proposing to doing is honestly more of a test run for next season for us than anything else. I'm so curious to see if they can figure it out. Even like yesterday, I think Juan Soto with the Nationals tested positive and then they they took him out. And I'm wondering if there's going to be any repercussions from that.
0: Yeah, because my concern and my question has been, and I haven't seen anybody that's got to answer this, is that if there is an outbreak on a team, then what do we do, right? Like what happens when you start having a whole team having to say, we can't just play this game, but we can't play the next three games. Or you catch a cat like Soto late, and now this gets to you know another team and all of this. Like, I think that the NBA has made the best point that is, uh, I think the NFL made this one too. It's more important to finish than it is to start. Like if you start it, it doesn't really matter unless you actually manage to get it finished. And hopefully by the time we get to next season, you know, we as a nation have got our shit under control because our big problem right now is we've just been such a national embarrassment. Like uh, I did around the horn yesterday. Frank Osoldo's was like, well, you know, uh, the way that baseball is doing it now is the same way that they're doing it in Germany and Italy. And I'm like, yeah, because they got their situation under control. Our, our, our situation is not under control. And I can only, I mean, we got to have it under control by next year, right? Like, at the very least, they got to have our shots or something like that, where I feel like next year they're going to be able to make this work. But, I mean, I think everybody involved in this knows they're rolling the dice because the financial consequences are so dire of not playing a season. And I just, I, I don't think there's, I think there will probably be an NFL season. There will not be a college football season. I feel like I could say that almost 100% that there's not going to be a college football season um in baseball let's see if they can finish and if they can finish then I think it'll all you know kind of sort of work out but I would just I don't know man like everywhere I look at it you can I think we're putting a great impetus on the players a burden rather on the players to make sure that they stay healthy and they stay inside but like in football all these coaches and stuff in baseball everybody you know in even college football all the coaches are going home you know, they're going to hang out with their families, and then they're at the mercy of the rest of everybody else. And that just doesn't seem sustainable, at least right now. Like, I'm going to what you got on that.
2: Well, the, the question with football are the numbers. Like, think about how many people are on a active, not just an active roster on an NFL team, but just on an active team in general with the strength coaches and the medical people. I mean, I don't know the exact number, but it's somewhere in the 800, 900, something like that. So we've talked about what it is in an NBA traveling party, for example, and there's no comparison and you're all over the place and you're, if you're a coordinator, if you're whatever, you're going to be in close quarters inside, you know, maybe they'll change that to some capacity, but there's so many risk points throughout every part of practice and games and everything like that. And the thing which is weird about, about the NFL, and I'm curious what you guys think about this, it, they seem to have been skating by and no one asking them for five months what their plan was, including... The players, and even I saw the players a couple uh, days ago, Todd Gurley and Russell Wilson, a bunch of them, they all put out this coordinated social media thing basically being like, uh, what's the plan? <laughs> like, <laughs> it's about to be August, and you guys have told us. And, and so they finally got to a few things, but
1: I don't know. They were the one league that had the luxury of time to figure this thing out. Baseball's in the middle of spring training when COVID shuts everything down, we're three quarters of the way through our regular season. We get shut down. The NFL is sitting pretty. They just had the draft and they had five months to figure it out. And they waited to the last moment. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to like call out Roger Goodell or the players association or anything, but I think it's a credit to, to Chris Paul, Michelle Roberts, Adam Silver, the leadership with our union and the NBA, that
0: we were able to pull this off. I can't believe they did it. Like, I think games start, what, next Friday? I was talking to somebody about this. It's me and Vinny Goodwill, we were talking about this and asked him when the game started, and he told me. And I was like, I'll be honest with you. I had never bothered to memorize or remember when any of this stuff was going to start back because I didn't think it mattered. I did, it never dawned on me that they were going to be able to pull this <laughs> off. I was like, oh, damn, games start next week? Ain't that something? I was doing TV uh, yesterday, and they're like, opening day in baseball. I'm like, really, today? <laughs> wow who knew <laughs> this wasn't going to come up right like i feel like for the nfl they treated like a snow day
2: baseball was especially bad baseball was like straight up like you didn't know what because they had these crazy negotiations you had no idea what the fuck was going on the entire time
0: yeah i, I feel like the nfl treated like a snow day but it didn't snow they're like yeah we ain't got to do our homework it's gonna snow tomorrow and then it's like three o'clock in the morning they look around and they're like yo there's no snow we're going to have to go to school. And I think they thought, and a lot of us had talked to people, you started hearing quiet whispers that they believed on what they thought was good source, that by July we were going to be out of this. And so I think they thought that by the time training camp came around, all of this would be under control. And that seemed incredibly stupid to me, but it seems like they were told by people who you know had some insight that by the time we get here, it's going to be all right. And it ain't all right. And so now they're like, wow, you know what? We've got like 80 guys on the roster. How in the world are we going to be able to figure this out? And then they get in these meetings with the players and, you know, NFL players have so many different sets of interests. And so you can't, it's hard to get any level of consensus among them. There's no like the NBA, there's a leadership, like crew of players who got the sway that can make this happen. The NFL doesn't work that way. They got no idea. They they have no idea what it is that they are going to do. And it doesn't sound like, I mean, a big part of this problem too, and I don't think people talk about this enough, is how many people are trying to go cheap and not pay for all these tests. Because these tests are not like the cost is not insignificant, and so they're trying to figure out how to make these tests stretch, and that's going to be the thing that does everybody in.
1: What, uh, spe- speaking of tests, what Bo, what what's your what's your thoughts on? There's a, there's a little bit of pushback, I think, from even some media members that, that cover the NBA, just about our access to testing and our our return time to testing so with t- with our tests. So you know we're getting results back day of testing daily so we have access to all these tests we have priority at this lab that we're using and then we're sitting here in florida where people are waiting five to seven days before they get the results back and by then it's it's too late the virus could have already been spread through that person
0: so when I was in graduate school in economics, I used to work for um, a health economist. And he always said that the difference between public health people and economists was that public health people wanted to figure out how to give all the stuff away and that the economists wanted to figure out how to allocate the stuff according to some market. Right. So the point that they would always make is, so if we're trying to distribute condoms, for example, The health education people are saying just put a bowl out and let people come get a handful of condoms and go. The economists are saying, but people are going to take this handful of condoms and they're not going to use them. And so we're going to wind up with all these people who need them and can't have them because they've been allocated poorly. All right. Problem is they're using like basically capitalism to figure out how to allocate these things. And some things are not meant to be distributed by capitalist means. And this happens to be one of them. So the NBA can demonstrate a priority because they can put the money down. And they can get these tests right back. Like, I don't think they're doing anything immoral by that. But this is the nature of the system that we have for all this stuff is that if you got the money, you can go ahead and make it happen. Now, I could be wrong. But from looking around, it doesn't seem like we got a shortage of access to testing right now. We do seem to have a shortage of like access to results as quickly as possible. And I get the concerns that people have there. So I feel like if you work one of those essential jobs, then, yeah, somebody should have you in a position. Your job should be able to test you. And get you the results back fast. But how many of their employers are actually willing to spend the money? Like, I think when you really, when it gets down to it, you, I, to me, I feel like you got to kind of think about it like this Are we blaming the NBA for doing what is necessary to keep its players and keep its employees safe? If they're going to have to interact in the ways that they're going to have to interact to do this, then I can't knock them for that part. And
1: employed. Yes. And employed. Yes. Because players would lose money, owners obviously would lose money there would be cuts. I, we, we, we talked about this a ton, but if we don't, if we don't do this, if we don't, if we, two months ago, we, you know, players decide we're not going to do this. We don't feel safe or we're going to focus on social justice and we don't play. There's a good chance, regardless of the health uh, circumstances in our country, we don't have a season next year because we're, we're ripping up our CBA. We're renegotiating everything. There's probably some sort of labor dispute and we're not having a season next year. So, for the well-being of the league, we had to play. And this was the only means for us to do that. The other thing I want to ask you about, Bo, to piggyback on that last question, was the importance of sports. And this is an argument that a lot of people make, is how important sports are in America. Uh, sports are returned to normalcy, whatever the argument may be. what Do you, what do you, do you buy that or what are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I think we have a tendency to overstate our own importance when it comes to sports. Like the big one that's offended me more than anything is the idea that somehow the NBA coming back and now nobody's going to pay attention to social justice and what's going on in the streets. I'm like, go turn on the news right now. They've been stopped Like the people with the cameras and the access until somebody starts burning things down. And they're not going to go back like the NBA was not going to be the thing that took people's minds away from it. But I do. I do think. That the presence of sports gives people, I think people like it. I think it makes people feel better. I think that it's 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 something that feels less foreign than everything else that we're dealing with. So, like, I do think well, while we go too far about these things, like look, like going to the movies, for example, that's a part of American life. Like, that's not just something that people do every now and then. That's like a staple of the way that people like kick it in this country. They can't do it right now. They've run through all the stuff on the apps that they want to watch and everything else, and so. I do think like I said, I couldn't believe how excited I was to watch basketball in this moment the other day. Like, I can't be nearly as dismissive of the concept as I honestly would have been two days ago because I hadn't been through it in that way. Um, but at the same time, we don't have to have this. It would be better if we had it. But like as a nation, I don't feel like we have to have this. And you're going to hear that rhetoric around football so much because foot- people think basketball is a game. P- people think football is a way of life. Like people look at football in such a different way. and. Every time it happens, like, what am I going to do without football? The same thing you do in March. Like, people like, like, we play football 12 months out of the year, right? The football season ends and somehow nobody dies. Like, what are you talking about? You know, but I think it'll help. I do think it'll help a lot of people in their lives. And I got to be careful, you know, not to be, you know, look, man, if we ain't got no football or no basketball, this greatly affects my life in a very, very, very significant way. Because I work for the people that sell you this stuff. They ain't got nothing to sell you if we don't have football.
2: Well, I was going to ask you but before, uh, College football. Talk about something that affects people's lives on a daily basis, and that, like, how are, how is the South going to react to no college football?
0: <laughs> that is a very good question. It, it, it's gotta like it, it's gotta on where your location is, right? Because honestly. You know, there's kind of two sounds, right? Like the South that doesn't know what it's going to do without college football don't look like me. I ain't so sure what them cats going to do to keep themselves straight. Like the rest of us, we'll figure it out. We'll go watch the NBA, right? We'll make it happen. We'll have no, you know, we'll have no problem with it in that regard. But it is going to, especially for a certain class of people, like in particularly states like Alabama, you know, certain parts of Tennessee, it's going to be real rough on them, the idea of not having this. Because those are their proteins. Like that's where they derive their their regional pride is coming from those teams. It's going to be a thing for those people. I worry more though, for like the people who make ancillary money around these games. Like I remember my family, uh, my dad's a Southern university in Baton Rouge. That's where we all, you know, that, that that's our, our school. And I remember I went down there one year for homecoming and my uncle told me that the guy who sells flags that you put on your car, that that dude one day made $10,000 in one day selling those car flags. Right, like I don't know what his income is, but I know that every year he's expecting I'm gonna get out here and I'm gonna sell these flags, and I'm gonna make this money. Ain't gonna be no flag money coming out for you right now. Like those are the people that I worry about more than anybody else.
2: These like the microeconomies all all around these
1: teams.
0: Yes, yes.
1: I do think on a larger scale, though, you've seen it with a number of schools that have already cut certain sports, mostly country club sports. Let's be honest. Uh, like Stanford cut, I think you know tennis or field hockey or something like that. Wisconsin came out, University of Wisconsin came out yesterday or the day before and said, we're operating at a huge deficit. We're gonna lose a ton of money this year. Football is such a driving force for the athletic departments of all these universities. And if there isn't f- football this year, I, I, look, I, I, I do worry about some of the, the ancillary um, consequences of that, not just for local businesses. Bo, you you mentioned earlier just about how even though sports have started, social justice hasn't stopped, right? This is still ongoing. There's still protests all over the country, whether it's being covered or not. One of the conversations that we had as players was like, how do we use this opportunity in the bubble uh, and with the return to sports to sort of highlight and amplify different things? You're, you're literally one of the smartest people I know. I listen to you all the time. You have such good thoughts on all these things. And, and my question is, what would you like NBA players to do with this
0: opportunity? What what, what do you want us to do? So that's interesting because I think, like I've watched Tobias Harris on this. And I think that like using the media availability is probably the best way to do this. Like, like I think that that's the place where the players absolutely have the most power. Like, I do think, and I'm not a stick-to-sports person at all, as you may have been able to glean. But I do think that the basketball games themselves have to primarily be basketball games. Like, the example I've been using for a while is if you watch the BET Awards this year, that was not an entertaining production. because Everybody had to try to, like, shoehorn in their Black Lives Matter message into their performance. And when I saw Megan Thee Stallion on some Mad Max Thunderdome shit with a black fist on a flag talking about Black Lives Matter before she did Savage, I was like, guys, you ain't got to... This is this is unnecessary. Like you don't have to you don't have to do this just to tell me that you did it, you know. And that's what the point that you don't want to reach with this. Like, I think the Black Lives Matter on the floor is a really good thing. But I think that like in those times where people have cameras on you, being able to speak on these things capably is probably the best way to go about it. Now, of course, I always like to make the point that while I appreciate everybody giving it their best try, don't everybody need to be talking right now. Not everybody is a qualified and capable messenger in these moments. We just had one of these examples this week. Not everybody needs to be saying what they think about the world, but the people who are able to, I think the best chance to really make it work is in those, you know, the, the, the sessions before games, the sessions after games. I think that's the place where people probably have the best chance to at least get to folks who may not ordinarily um, have heard them, you know, because there's a significant segment of the NBA viewing population that's already up on game. that already knows what's going on. But I also do think that there's some people, now that the cameras are not in the streets as much as they were before, who can let people know what is going on in the streets and then go from there. And so with basketball, I feel like it's different than football. So like Kenny Stills can say all this stuff all the time and he's doing great work. But in the end, he's Kenny Stills. If I ask people to pick Kenny Stills out on the street, they're not going to know who he is. They know Kenny Stills primarily because of the things that he's done. The NBA has a bunch of people that we know because they are basketball players. And I think that they've got, because of the nature of the way the sport is promoted and the way the sport is, that those people can do more just through their words. You know, just through their words when they have a chance and somebody is there is there to see them. But the one thing players can't do is be scared, right? Like, you know what the truth is. It's okay for you to say what is true in these moments. You know, like you don't have to be inflammatory to make the point. You can't be afraid to say what's true.
1: I think the problem though is... Uh, there's been a few guys whose truth is not based in reality. And they've gone on their platforms and spoken nonsense. Yes. And Howard Bryant, who I follow on Twitter, he's tweeted this out a number of times over the last couple of months. He's like, are we sure we want all athletes <laughs> to have a platform? <laughs>
0: yeah, no, we just had it happen. We just had it happen. Like, Luckily, the one guy I saw say something ridiculous this week is known for being ridiculous right like they, are, you, that, are you talking are you talking about dwight yeah i'm talking about dwight yeah okay. that was ridiculous like like yeah. the question i asked in my podcast about dwight was when he said i don't believe in vaccines what don't you believe in like it's not santa claus do you believe that they don't work because if you think that they don't work explain to me why we haven't all died of the measles um are you a person that's like somehow believes that vaccines are tied to like you know autism in children or stuff like that because if that's what you believe, that's not saying that you don't believe in vaccines. You know, that's saying that you believe that there are consequences to use in vaccines that we don't talk nearly enough about. But fortunately, on this case, he is a person that right or wrong, people don't take seriously in the first place. And so once he says this, like if you find one person that heard Dwight Howard say that I don't believe in vaccines and they're like, yo, I don't believe in vaccines either because Dwight doesn't. I got a lot of questions about the rest of their lives and like everything else that they do. But
1: I, see, I disagree with you on that. Really? I do. I, I think you're making the assumption that everyone is a critical thinker. I, I think that's the wrong assumption. I think there's, and, and, and especially younger people, they're highly impressionable. They're highly impressionable. Going back a couple of weeks ago to what Deshaun said and what Steven Jackson said, there's, there's a lot of danger in that. Yeah. The three of us can sit there and listen and be like, all right, that's bullshit. And like wrong. And, but I, I, there, especially now with this QAnon stuff and this, like, these conspiracy theories that are living on Facebook and and Reddit and forums and and on social media, there's, there's danger in this. There's absolute
0: danger in this. See, I was, with the Steven Jackson and Deshaun Jackson thing, I think that they were kind of in two different positions. So I think that the danger you describe existed with Steven Jackson in a way that it did not with Deshaun Jackson. I do think that people take Steve seriously. Yeah. I don't think that people take Deshaun seriously. I don't know if I've ever heard Deshaun Jackson's voice to be honest. Right. Like I think, I think that there was a larger point that a lot of people wanted to make, which was about this strain of anti-Semitism that that is rampant and it's all over the place. And Deshaun Jackson became an easy example of somebody to point it out on. Right. And then when Steven Jackson jumped in and was like, no, he didn't say anything wrong. Whoa, wait a minute now, right? Like that's where I thought that we wound up in a space with a problem with the words that he wound up saying. But I am at this place now where I guess I don't have the greatest gauge on who strangers take seriously. And I'm on this new thing where I'm ignoring people that I don't think are meant to be taken seriously. And I think that we get a lot farther if we ignore people who should not be taken seriously. But I agree with you. Like I think Steve got himself to a place where we do now take him seriously. And I think that Dwight in particular, I think if LeBron had said that, then that's one thing. I think if you had said that, then that would be one thing. We can go through all the different guys in the league. Chris Paul says it, that's one thing. But I think when Dwight says it, I think that people just kind of shrug it off and keep on going. Now, maybe there is somebody that hears Dwight and subscribes to whatever it is that he is talking about. But I think that the impression and the image that he has is not one that puts him in that place.
1: I, I would agree with you to an extent, but I can tell you firsthand that I work with and have worked with people in the NBA who believe a lot of this bullshit when it gets perpetuated. I think it continues to feed that beast of not of conspiracies and nonsense and anti-Semitism and all, all the stuff. It just,
0: it feeds the beast. This is my NBA dilemma here on some of this stuff. And I don't think that this is a particularly judgmental thing to say. I think that this is important to note is that people think that going to college doesn't matter, right? And if you don't go to college, it does not mean that you are not intelligent, right? But what you do get from going to college is like an ability to discern and to separate out what isn't worth hearing, like knowing a bad idea when you hear one. Like that's what you get, I think from the rigor of just education and you get to that place. And I think we have a lot of people who are now out educating themselves, except in this day and age, you used to have to try to educate yourself through books like the Malcolm X story, right? He's just living in the prison library. You don't have to do that anymore. You get to take so many shortcuts. And I feel like we got a lot of cats who don't know who's worth listening to. And then they wind up going and talking to each other because somehow they think they're the ones with the real truth, you know, and, and, I don't know how in the world you're supposed to fix that, but people need to appreciate that there's a real value in like, intellectual authority, right? There, there, there's a real value in having read a lot of things and being able to take what's good and take what's not. And I do think that we have people with public platforms who have not been tested or certified before they get to go talk to everybody else. And that does worry me. How much
2: of that do you think, and this is not just sports, I think this is a thing with artists and entertainers as well, and we've definitely seen this over the last couple weeks, how much of this is also just celebrity and people who are used to basically being told they are right all the time and never being challenged on anything and also getting credit for the bare minimum of either political activity or statement or anything like that. And so they they basically don't necessarily understand. They've never been challenged before. And I think we saw some of this around the Kanye stuff. They've never been challenged before. And so if you're going on and you're saying Kanye, why can't Kanye be president? I think there's a, I think that I, th- these are not the same issue, but there there is a, there's a strain of comparison between the two and that you, to your point about not everyone needs to be speaking out all the time. This is a, this is a thing around the.
0: Yeah. Me and my good, me and one of my good friends, he's a college professor. We were talking about this and it feels like we have, eliminated the like expertise. It's a thing, right? Like some people are better at things than others. And so like the idea that Kanye could be president, that is like reinforced, obviously by the fact that Trump became president without any actual level of expertise. And so what amazes me about Trump is when you hear people talk about whether or not they're going to vote for him what gets me is they never talk about whether or not he's good at the job or whether or not he's going to be good at the job. Like being good at the job matters in a way that ideology does not, right? Like even if ideologically, I don't agree with you, if you can make sure the trains run on time, there's a real value to the person being in charge who can do those things. But what happened is we act like being good at something doesn't matter. Like just as long as you want to do it and you think you can be good at it. And somebody's like, yeah, well, why don't you go ahead and give it a try? Look, my whole career is based on, I think I can do that. Why don't I give it a try? So I, 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 you know, I there's certain hypocrisy that comes from this, but I got lucky. I was actually good at what it was that I was talking about doing. You gotta be good at some of this stuff. And I just don't feel like I have an opinion, therefore I can anoint myself. And that's where you're talking about that lack of challenge is that people keep telling you how good you are at all this stuff. And they tell you how smart you are in all these spaces and places. And that just kind of blows my mind because I have never lived a life that's been in a place with nobody that'll come check me. And people are scared of my brain, and they still come check me if they think I'm saying something ridiculous.
2: Yeah, well, we, to that point, also we see this even with people challenging like Dr. Fauci. You know, you have a guy like Dr. Fauci who's been a worked for presidents of both parties for the last thirty years, has a has a, basically as impeccable a reputation as you can have in the in the public space, and you will see like like radio hosts. And people in the media acting like they understand more about COVID than Dr. Fauci because they have the ability technically to say that. And the idea is insane on its face. You know, it's one thing if Donald Trump does this because technically he's the president of the United States. And so he can say whatever he wants. He has the authority to do that. Whether or not he's out of his mind, that's a different conversation. But if you're a if you're a sports radio host, you have to have a sort of Something wrong with you to think you know more about this particular (laughs) topic than Dr. Fauci. Yo,
0: to be honest, you have to have something in you crazy if you're a sports radio host and you think you know more about basketball or football than the people who play it, but we do that every day, right? Like everybody can decide. Like, I feel like I can listen to somebody and be like, Yeah, that don't add up, right? Like, I feel like it's fair for me to say that kind of thing about some people. Like, yeah, I don't know about this one. But you're right. There are people looking at Fauci and saying to themselves, That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. How do you know he doesn't know what he's talking about? Like, how did you draw? Well, he got a few things wrong. You don't say. So you You haven't
2: even heard of epidemiology before February. You didn't know the word existed. And now you're
0: an expert. I I know epidemiologists. I know people who have studied around this, right? I didn't fully know what epidemiology was until like two months ago, where I was like, you know, I should probably look up what that word means. I should probably go check this out. (laughs) And these people out here telling me that they know more than Fauci. I think this
1: goes back to an issue of like credibility. And let's let's uh, even in your your own career, you you didn't start out where you are right now. Right. There's reps required. I didn't just become an NBA player. There's reps required. Now I'm in 14 years in. I have credibility as an NBA player. I know what the fuck I'm talking about. Right. We've gotten to the p- point in society where we just people that are credible are not given their, their the respect that they deserve for whatever we, we question every truth every bit of credibility now it's a very it's a very weird place we're in in a society
0: yeah so my so i have a thought about like the role that social media plays in all this which is basically at first most of us got on social media i was kind of in between stage when it got going but i felt like the appeal to social media at first was that it allowed famous people and brands to kick it like regular people, right? Like they got to interact with the people amongst them and they got to show their other side. And then there wound up being this weird convergence where social media became where regular people could act like brands. Like when you started seeing people putting out their own notes app statements when they've said something silly on Twitter or something like that. It's like everybody's Instagram page is their own TV channel and they are the star of that channel. And if you get in and you start talking about certain things, like now all of a sudden you, you can make yourself an authority to this group of people, whoever it is that follows you. And that is intoxicating. Like it used to be to me and I could be wrong, but it used to be to me that when you go on Twitter and stuff, and I know for me personally, it was a lot more of an exchange of ideas. Now it's a lot more like sloganeering and everybody's saying what they know what the right answer is because nobody wants to have a back and forth because honestly, a back and forth can turn ugly real fast, you know, in the way things go. And so these people, everybody gets to decide themselves that they're an expert. And if you can convince a couple of people that you are, now, boom, you're an expert. And, you know, you don't, just because you have da-da-da doesn't mean that I don't da-da-da and everything else. And, like, I feel like there's a lack of humility of just being willing to look up and be like, no, actually, I don't know what I'm talking about right now.
2: Well, that's interesting. The, the, the Twitter point is, and we think we've talked about this before, but the Twitter point is interesting. And I have a question for you about this with regards to sports, because... There's now pretty substantial evidence in politics, for example, that the Twitter consensus on something is completely irrelevant to how voters actually vote and how voters actually think. And so we saw this uh, with some of the Bernie Biden stuff earlier in the year, where if you went on Twitter, you would think Joe Biden in February, March, you think Joe Biden had no chance of getting 10 votes, right? much less getting the nomination. And then you go and you and you go and you see what actually happens and you realize that there are millions and millions of middle aged and older people around the country who actually vote who don't give a (laughs) shit about the discourse on Twitter. And so it just is it's completely it's completely irrelevant to what the masses actually think. My question is with sports, is that the case because the demos are different? You know, like the age groups of people that consume sports fan base wise is different than like an like a voter.
0: So I want to make a point right fast that you mentioned about Biden. Right. Because I think I had fallen into that trap a little bit because I just wasn't sure where the affection for Biden was. I'll tell you the moment I turned around on me. You may remember this. He was at a church in South Carolina in advance of the primary. And some gentleman asked him something about his faith. And Biden Gave his testimony, he stood up and talked about all the things that he'd been through, and it was very vulnerable, right? Like I'm not a religious man, but I am southern, so I can relate to you know to what was going on. And he gave his testimony. You know, this man's lost his son, all these, you know, all these different things that he's gone through. And he stood there in that church, with those black people, and he gave that testimony. And I was like, Oh, you're crazy if you think this guy ain't witnessed South Carolina. <laughs> like you, you, what you, like what that told me was, but that was a that was a discussion of expertise, right? Like if you have an expertise in politics, you understand. South Carolina is is heavily black on the Democratic side in particular. You understand like, the role that this man has had in, you know, in different things in that state and everything else. And you know the role that faith plays in, in the lives of a lot of those voters. And when I heard him say that, I was like, oh, yeah, we can cancel Christmas, baby. Everywhere, everywhere they got black people, Bernie ain't going to come holler at these people um, in his like, largely agnostic platform. That doesn't work with that particular base of people. It's not going down. And so people missed it because they missed the expertise. And so they felt like, okay, well, we're just talking to each other because Twitter, you can create an echo chamber, right? It doesn't have to be an echo chamber. You create the echo chamber following only people that say the things that you want to say. And you're right. Everybody gets to say that same thing. And, you know, okay, well, nobody thinks this. It's like watching baseball, I always say either everybody, you know, likes baseball or nobody, you know, likes baseball, right? Like if you like baseball, you either a think it's the game of the world or you think, I don't even understand how this stuff is on television. Right. But there's like no space in between and sports gets that too, because look, there's no expertise level to determine whether or not you can talk about sports. And most people, I swear, it drives me crazy. Like they don't have the humility to recognize in sports what they don't know, right? Like how little they may or may not know. Like I know for me, I've always been like super sports nerd, right? Like, like, like almanac reading type or whatever. And I know a lot of sports history. I probably know more sports history than the people that I cover by and large. Like, that, that's just what it is. Because while they were out getting good at sports, I was at home reading books about sports. That's why I know more than they do. But when it comes to the actual games, like that was the best thing about working at ESPN. Is you start talking to these cats and you realize oh, wow, I don't know what I'm talking about. Not nearly as much as them. Like, I would never go on television with a former athlete and tell them they're wrong, you know, unless they're just like something that's just totally ridiculous. I'll be like, well, look, what about this? You know, like, what do you think about this? Because that person is the expert. Like, Magic Johnson could be on TV, sounding like he doesn't know anything about basketball. Magic Johnson knows so much more about basketball than I do. He's just better at talking about it on, I'm better at talking about it on television. But sports makes everybody believe that everybody thinks they can do my job And everybody doing my job thinks they can do a coach's job. No, you can't. You you just can't. I'm here to tell you right now, even the dumbest coaches that I think, like the coaches I think are dumb that I've wound up having conversations with, I'm like, oh, wow, that guy knows a whole lot more about this stuff than I do. (laughs) Way more. And even the nerds that break down the actions and their gifs and stuff like that. Nah, man, these dudes know so much more about any of this than any of us ever will. And you got to be humble enough to admit that.
1: There's some people that do try to break down NBA stuff, well-intentioned, well-meaning. I don't think it's self-serving. I think they think they know what they're talking about, but they really don't. (laughs) And I sometimes will go on Twitter and I'll see these things and I'll be like, that's not what happened there. That's not what happened there. You don't even have the fucking terminology correct, by the way. But with, with this sort of confluence of sports and politics, do you find it challenging at times to toe the line because you are an employee of ESPN? And we saw what happened with Woj, whether you think he should have written the email or not written the email or was it unprofessional or whatever. Do you, do you find it challenging at times to sort of toe that line from speaking your mind or do you, do you feel like you have the license to say whatever you want in, in your role?
0: Now, I know I can't say whatever I want. I'm very aware of that. I adopted a rule many years ago about social media and it has kept me safe because I've never had a social media controversy like a real blow up. Everything happened. I've never been in one of those. and It's pretty simple. If I got a second thought, don't say it. There is no one thing in this world that I need to say that is so important that it's got to get out there right now. Like when you look at the things that people get in trouble for saying in public, name one of those things they said that changed the world. Nobody can, right? Like name one of those things, somebody lost their job for it. Nobody can say that it was worth it, you know? And so I have figured out over time, at least I feel like that I can find like this, the overlap in the Venn diagram where people hear it and they're like, yeah, okay, that, that, that okay, that'll go. Oh, okay, that'll go. Or like, if I need to walk you through it, I'll walk you through it and ultimately get to the point. But I am big on the, it's not worth it. Like that's, that's the big place that I get to is the, like when I saw that happen with Woj, I was like, yeah, I probably wouldn't have done that because it's not worth it. It just like, like, I didn't think, I wouldn't have thought it would have played the way it did for him, to be honest, but I would have been at a, eh, nah, I don't think it's worth it. And so I have found that it's word choice that gets people in trouble. It's not even necessarily the sentiment that they express as much as it winds up being the words that they choose that when people hear them, it sounds like you hit the wrong key on the piano. And like those, I'm like, ah, nah, I'll kind of sort of, I'll kind of sort of leave that one be. That That's generally my approach about it is, is, you know, is in that way. But I know, yeah, words get people in trouble more than ideas do, I find. Unless you just think something that's just like wildly hateful. But I don't, I don't feel like I got any personal belief of mine that I really can't say in front of people.
2: Well, what was frustrating about the, what would you think from the outside looking in, JJ? And I don't think we've talked about this in the show, so I want to hear what you think about it. But it was, the Senator Howley from Missouri was so clearly operating in bad faith and just trolling that it became it became a thing that a guy like Woj, who's one of the best reporters, period, not just in sports, just out there right now working, like to have to have a uh, to have a, a blow up with somebody like that who's just not a serious person. I mean, how he's just doing that because he knows he's going to get a reaction from a certain type of person on the internet, and so I think it's you know to that point a little bit, Bo. There are so many people like that now on the internet, of all—not just in sports, such as politics and everything—who just like saying things because they know they're going to get a reaction out of a small group of people, out of a large group of people, out of whatever it is. And so it's almost like that—that that philosophy of just sidestepping the landmines—is how everyone has to be. Of like, don't give into the, don't give in to the traps because they're being set every ten seconds left and right. And whether it's you tweeting something or you responding to something it's still this it's still the same idea of your, your your life and your work
0: is more important than dealing with their bullshit. Yeah, I'll say this that there are minds but the minds are usually in a minefield that has a sign that says this is a minefield. Right, like I can't think of the last time somebody got caught on something, and I would saw it and would have thought, "Huh, you probably should have known that was coming." Like this happened to me when I wore that Caucasians t-shirt. I really didn't know it was going to be a thing. I just thought it was fun. It turned into a giant thing. Like that's the one time where I was like, "Oh, really? There were mines over there?" Like I mean, like I thought I thought there were like some things for me to trip over. You know, like I knew there was some stuff, but I didn't think there were no mines. And it really wasn't a minefield in that case. But I can see to a degree how people walk into things and don't know what's coming but I see people get emotional on the internet. Like that's the thing that gets them is then folks start winding up getting them all salty. And then they get out here and they fire off. Like I got a little salty this morning because the people got mad at me because I was saying Steph Curry, he's not on my list of guys to go get his own shot. Like guys to go one, four flat and get us a bucket. I'll take Dame. I'll take Kyrie. But if I need somebody to turn five on five into four on three, I'll take Steph. JJ look like you're about to jump <laughs> through the screen. <laughs> JJ about to jump through the screen. Yep. See, and I and see people reacted, amount, like he reacted the, and I got mad too.
1: <laughs> the amount of disrespect that Steph Curry gets. See, it's it blows my see, mind. Somebody else said my disrespect. Mind. It's not disrespect. It, it blows my mind. He 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 creates off the dribble all the time. Right, right. He I mean, creates I'm off saying. the dribble all the time.
0: I'm not saying that he doesn't create off the dribble. And that was the thing. Somebody took a snippet of the podcast, of what I was talking about. I wasn't saying that he doesn't create off the dribble, but he does create, because he does create off the dribble all the time, right? But 10 left on the shot clock, we got to get this bucket right here. I feel like if you switch Kevin Love onto Dame Lillard, Dame Lillard's going to wind up getting a bucket, right? And I know that that's like the most extreme example that we could point to, but like, I feel like the gravity of Steph is so cold and that if you got the right dudes around him, it becomes a lot easier because his handle is sick and all of this stuff. But if I need that one bucket, I'm asking Kyrie to give me that bucket before, and I would never say that Kyrie's a better player than Steph. That would be absurd. But if I need that, I'm going with Kyrie. But see, you reacted like that, and the next thing I know, I woke up on the internet, I was calling people stupid before I could even say good morning. It wasn't even <laughs> 7 o'clock. I got to do better than that. I got to do better than that.
1: <laughs> what What if that shot against Kevin Love went in? We've seen that. We've seen him make that shot hundreds of times. It's a fair question. You're talking about one possession, <laughs> one shot. <laughs> As your, as your, as your evidence that he can't get his own shot. Like that, that, that's, that's crazy to me. Look, look,
0: here I I am after I just said that I can't act like I don't know more about these things than NBA players. And now I got to fall the fuck back.
2: (laughs) No less than 10 minutes afterwards. (laughs)
0: Yes. Now I have to display my humility aside from the fact that he might be right. Right. But it was a larger discussion. It was about. Like we were trying to go through like top five players in league and why you got to got a split between who the superstars and who are not the superstars. And Steph is always a little bit of a weird case because he's so good at the things he's so good at. And then like the defense comes up and I think he doesn't get it. I think he's a better defender than he gets credit for for being. And then I said on the podcast, he doesn't guard anybody, right? Like I'm everything I say, I hate I'm everything that I say that I despise in this moment, but we're not disrespecting Steph. At least I'm not.
1: I I think it's the way that he gets his numbers that people have a problem with because you're talking about a guy who's okay. Defensively, he led the league in steals, right? He averages for his career around five or six rebounds a game. He's getting you six, seven assists a game. Just, you know, his MVP year, he was put, those are Jordan's numbers, 36 and five. in like 32 minutes, (laughs) right? Not playing in the fourth quarter sometimes. And by the way, he also led the league in steals. So, I think it's the way he gets his numbers that people have a problem with.
0: Yeah. I I, am, I admit this about him. When we talk about how he gets his numbers. We've never had a superstar player who played the type of game that he played. And I've had like, he has forced me to adjust my mentality on how I evaluate NBA players. Cause there was a time where a guy that size just couldn't be the guy that he is in the NBA right now. Like I was there that year. He killed the NCAA tournament. I was there in Raleigh for those two games. I've never seen anything like that before. And even after seeing that, I was like, well, I guess we'll see how this goes in the NBA. And then I looked up and was like, okay, so we got different rules now. We got a different set of circumstances that allows this guy to flourish. But I admit that I at times have to break myself from the basketball that I grew up with to recognize the basketball that is being played now and to appreciate like where he stands within that. It also doesn't help, for me at least, that playoff Steph, like later in the playoffs, just never felt quite like the Steph that we had prior to that. Like in all these runs, we don't have a game like LeBron game six in Boston, for example, in the playoffs that we can point to. But that has a lot to do with the fact that the Warriors are out here beating everybody by like 10, 15 points, you know, in the course of that, where you go through a whole postseason with only one loss, you don't have a game to point to. There is no back to the wall sort of situation. So like, I admit that, he puts me in a place where I have no problem denying, how, denying that he is great. is when we start getting into orders of greatness at the top. Then we start nitpicking. And then I always wind up with all these Warriors fans with their damn pocket protectors all coming out and wanting to come at my neck at 6 o'clock in the morning.
1: It's a fair point you made about the disconnect from the basketball you grew up watching in the NBA versus how Steph plays and right. why that's so different. And I feel like that's a disconnect that a lot of people have. Either in the way that they played basketball, or the or the, the the type of basketball they fell in love with and watched, whether that's 80s NBA, 90s NBA, early 2000s, whatever. The second point I wanted to make, and and Bob Myers has, has told me this uh, before, I think the nature of Steph's game as you get deeper into the playoffs, there's a level of just wear and tear because of how much he moves. Right. How much people grab him off the ball, and as you get further in the playoffs, referees allow a little bit more. And that was, honestly, that was a big impetus. I think for them trying to get KD was, you know, when they lost, they were up three-one, but when they lost, like they beat the shit out of Steph. I mean, Shump beat the shit out of Steph for for those seven games, and I think that's part of the reason. Like, you haven't seen those. Like, all right, he averaged thirty-five for the finals, and. Right. He's the MVP. Yeah. It, it, it's not like his finals numbers were bad. Right. They were always good. Right. It just weren't, you yeah. know, next level.
0: Yeah. Like I felt like they had to get Durant because they were in a place where they did need another player who could get his own shot. Like those yeah. other dudes are offshoots of step and the perfect, like the perfect compliments they were, but in the playoffs, you just wind up needing guys who can get their own shots. And if, They say, hey, you need to get a guy who can get his own shot and Kevin Durant's available. Then you go get Kevin Durant, right? Like, you don't stop in the middle. Like, Milwaukee's interesting this year to me because I feel like Middleton has evolved and grown to the place where he's the guy who can get his own shot and be 50-40-90, which is bananas, right? But if you asked me that two years ago, I didn't think that he was that type of dude. And I think that part of what I'm saying about Steph is informed by getting in the playoffs and, like you say, the wear and tear and all the tugging on him and then – at times at 15 and 16, being the one guy that you trusted to go out there and get his own shot, which is what then makes me look at him and say, I got questions about how exactly he can go about getting his own shot. Because I'm not talking about the 82. I'm talking about the seven. Like when we get to that place, like that's where we get. And that's what I always hate. I feel so bad because he's so good. I contend. I told him once, like the same way I told you, I wrote that article about you in 06. I was like, I built a career off that. Steph saved my career because I was ready to quit it all. And then I went to that ACAA tournament and was like, oh no, I got to keep doing this. Like, I, I can't, I cannot, like, like I'm going to get to watch stuff like this. Like I had to tell him that when he did HQ once. Cause like, so I'm not a hater in any way. No, on no, Steph. no. yeah. no. There, there's just, there's an, he's just, he's the, hey, he had Harden. Harden is a really interesting and difficult player to evaluate because he's so good in a way that is still kind of foreign to somebody my age. And I don't know where exactly to put him compared to like LeBron and Kawhi Leonard, who absolutely fits something that even MB absolutely fits a template that I understand is great basketball.
1: I I know it would make for boring television, but sometimes I'm just like, why can't we appreciate greatness? Why can't we just appreciate a player's greatness instead of nitpicking?
0: Like, is there a perfect player? Has there ever been a perfect player? You know what, though? It's funny. Steph got too good to simply be appreciated. Because this do told me about LeBron, Like when, especially like 2010, 2011 era with LeBron. And I was just like, we don't talk about Kevin Garnett like this. And there are lots of nitpicks that we could make about Kevin Garnett throughout his career. The big one being, that's a dude who don't want that shot at the end. Never has been that guy. Like, we could even go see it in Boston, right? We could have nitpicked him to death. But we didn't. And that's because as good as Kevin Garnett was, We weren't trying to put him into a different echelon of player than the space he was in. And so Steph winds up in this tier of greatness where you start comparing him to these other people because you're trying to figure out where he is. But I do agree with you that it's okay to stop and we can evaluate you for what you can do and what you are and not get caught up in what you're not. Like the way I always talk about the draft is in the first five picks of the draft, we're looking at you. I got to think a lot about what you can't do if you're a top five pick in the draft. After that, all I'm worried about is what you can do. Like, what are you going to bring to the team? But if I'm looking at you in a position to be a superstar, then what you can't do does start to matter because that's when we start plugging things in and around to go about it. But I do think that we all have a tendency to just kind of like get to these players, get to these people who are at the top, and then all we want to talk about is what they can't do. Like, the great example of this, of course, is Ben Simmons, who makes it so hard for us because he can do everything Except, and I, and in fact, I can't say he can't shoot. My problem with him is not that he can't shoot, it's that he won't shoot. And it drives me bananas. It makes me want to put my head through a wall because you just won't shoot. And so when I talk to Pablo about it, Pablo's response would always be, you act like he's terrible. I'm like, no, I'm not acting like he's terrible. I'm <laughs> acting like he's great. And I just can't figure out why he won't shoot the basketball. You know, and Steph, I think, gets in that same space. That's fair. I,
1: I, I that, That's fair. I think you're, you're right in the sense that when we start talking about the all time greats and Steph one back to back MVPs, unanimous MVP leads a team to 73 wins, wins three chips. He's in the upper echelon. And once, once you're in the upper echelon, I totally agree with you. That's when you start nitpicking. I I do think to, to Ben Simmons point, I, I do think like we don't appreciate his greatness. The guys, 18 8 and 8 guards every position one through five so well so well his on the ball defense is insane and all anybody wants to talk about is that he can't or won't shoot yeah Because we've never seen
0: one of those before. (laughs) Have you ever seen a a player that was that good at basketball that was like, nah, but I don't want to shoot. History is littered. Like Charles Barkley, such a great basketball player until he decided he wanted to shoot. Why do you want to shoot so much? (laughs) This is the only dude I've ever seen that's like, nah, I'm good on that. Why are you good on this? Shooting is fun. I really enjoy it. Why don't you want to
2: (laughs) do? Couldn't you argue the nitpicking makes these guys more beloved, though? Like what I would say is like, like Steph... Steph, LeBron, all the guys who sort of get these get the random kind of uh flyby shots at them all the time, all the nitpicking all the time. They have insane fan bases. Like the shit that Bo you're dealing with when you criticize Steph. Yes. Versus like, I don't know if this is the case with like Tim Duncan. You know, guys that were not nitpicked really, that were just dominant and they kind of and I guess maybe Kawhi to a certain extent well, now. Yeah, I would say that. Who yeah. just, just win and put up numbers and no one ever really kind of talks about positively or negatively. They just kind of go, they're like, go by the wayside.
0: And Tim Duncan, there's room to nitpick on that one. If you wanted to, that's another dude not so excited about taking that big shot when it comes down to it. It's not, it's not quite his bag, right? Like that's, there's a certain wiring for some people where that's not there for him. You could do that. If Tim Duncan played for a different team, that would have come up a lot more. But the persona that we had of him as the unassuming guy, we didn't mind if he did unassuming things. You know what I mean? But he's a guy who avoided that level of nitpick. Um, LeBron never was able to, Dwayne Wade avoided that level of nitpick. I don't have anything to point to necessarily about him, but he always avoided some of that criticism. Maybe it's because he won a championship in his third year in the league, right? Like Once that happens, that Tim Duncan won a championship in his second year in the league. Meanwhile, he played with David Robinson, who spent his entire career being nitpicked into the ground. And I went back and looked at David Robinson on YouTube. Holy shit, he's so much better than I remembered. And I remembered him being really good. That
1: that whole that whole crew of centers in the 90s was just insane. Just insane. Bo who, who's whose fans go the hardest for their favorite player? I feel like it's Kobe fans.
0: Yes, no question. No question. No question. Like, I feel like it's been long enough that we could talk about this now without it being awkward. Kobe fans, and I finally figured it out. Did a podcast on it. I finally figured it out. It's because Kobe was on the wrong side of everybody's favorite player. He was on the wrong side of Jordan just because he wasn't Jordan. He was on the wrong side of LeBron because he wasn't LeBron. And the big one, he was on the wrong side of Allen Iverson, right? Like, Allen Iverson made Kobe look soft in the way... And, of course, Allen loves Kobe, right? Like, all these guys that we talk about... They all love Kobe, but the Kobe fans, they're like Nas fans. They feel like they've been fighting their whole lives (laughs) and they always have to defend and prove it. And it wasn't until Kobe died. Some dude called my podcast, left a voicemail, crying, sobbing, behavior that I ordinarily would have zero respect for. But I heard him explain it and he was just like, look, man, the thing was, y'all always talked about what Kobe wasn't. Why couldn't you just let Kobe be Kobe? And I really was like, wow, I hadn't thought about it like this. I see where you guys are coming from, but they'll fight you. They'll fight you in the street. They'll, they'll run up on you. Like it used to be Irish, right? I don't even engage in that in, in those discussions anymore. Cause they're not talking about basketball. They talk about something much bigger, much different. But yeah, Kobe, number one, I don't even know who's number two. Cause LeBron, LeBron is up there, but it ain't the same kind of passion.
1: Totally agree. Totally agree. It's so funny about just not, it's not funny, but it's, it's, it's so, it's so weird. LeBron said this the other day, he said, you know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about Kobe. And when I get into any basketball discussion, so this is like daily basis, definitely multiple times a week, if not daily Kobe's name comes up. He, he was such a figure in my like upbringing in basketball and then in my NBA career and it still feels so surreal. Like it almost, I, it was, it, it was, I was an emotional wreck for a, a week or two. It's still, I'm, I'm like, did he really, he really pass? Like sometimes I have to like remind myself, no, he's, he's gone. Like it's, he's just, he was such a, it, it, it was, I mean, I, I knew Kobe. I didn't, it's not like we were best friends or anything. But he was just such a big part of my my, my basketball life. And I, I, he comes up all the time.
0: It's crazy. I didn't realize that either until he died, like that same kind of impact. Because he graduated high school the year before I did. So, like, he feels differently to me than he did. Like, he's taking Brandy to the prom and all of this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and he's getting to the league and he's playing with Shaq. I was always a shag dude, like as it went. And that was at a time where obviously you passed the ball to the big man. That was the way that basketball worked at the time. And I played basketball at a high school where the <laughs> that's what, that was what the whole game was. You pass the ball to the big man. We work everything else out, outside of pass the ball to the big man, which is something that Kobe absolutely was not doing. I had to become an adult to appreciate what it had to be like to be Kobe. And you feel like you're working so hard and you're doing all of this and they keep patting you on the head and telling you to pass the ball to the big man. The big man who, by the way, is not showing up in shape and all these different things that you were doing yourself and you quietly have become as good a player and nobody notices it. Like 2001 postseason is Kobe, right? Shaq did it in the finals, but before that it's all Kobe. And I had to really become an adult to like fully get what it was that he, like why he was the way he was about some things that used to drive me crazy, made a lot more sense. And then after he died, I used to talk about this when he was alive, but it really hit me most. First professional athlete I ever talked to in a locker room was Kobe Bryant. I went to the Katrina. There was a charity game after Hurricane Katrina in Houston. And I'm petrified, man. I've never done this before in my life. They send me down there to do that. And I guess they didn't know I'd never done that before in my life. And I don't know. Like, I did not know that you're supposed to just walk up to people and talk to them. I had no idea. Like, I'm, I'm like standing on a wall at a school dance, like wondering who I can dance with or how it even goes. I had no idea. And Kobe saw me. And I saw Kobe and I... And he, kind of like gave me a little like come over here and I nervously come over there and I talked to him. And of course he told me about how it was a charity game, but he planned to kill everybody. Like that, 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 was, that was the the ultimate point of our discussion that we had, but I stopped and thought about that with everything else. And it was like, yo, this dude has really been a part of my life for more than half of my life.
1: All right. Let's get to, let's get to some, uh, some rankings. We're going to draft a little, it's a little off the wall, but we're going to draft our favorite movies. That feature an airplane prominently in the plot. And now yes. the prominently in the plot may be a point of discussion and and debate for some of these films. So we'll get to that. Um, we're gonna snit. we're gonna snake the draft. Bo, why don't you go first? Bo, so you know these drafts
2: usually end up very contentious because I'm an excellent drafter. JJ's like a mediocre drafter at best. Um, mm-hmm. my draft selections are often controversial. So
1: it's because you drafted Honey Mustard with the number one pick for condiments. Okay. <laughs> let's go. Let's start it up. All right. I'll go in the middle. Tommy, you go last. So, Bo, let's start us off. Yep.
0: All right. This is interesting because it's a snake draft. And so I feel like my number one pick won't be the number one pick, but I got to make sure I get my number one pick while it's out there because I can't have any of you sneaking up and taking it. The number one pick with a movie prominently featuring a plane, obviously an all brand, is Passenger 57. Always bet. Oh black good choice
2: it's a great good, choice good safe number one pick that would have been like a number four for me
0: no man that Master 57 was a really big deal man this is where i'm yeah. a little bit older than the crew you don't realize what a big deal that that commercial would always been on black wesley's <laughs> saving I don't, I don't, the whole plane i i don't think i've seen
1: that movie since i was a
0: kid but it's a good movie i saw it once yeah. it yeah. matters it matters damn it it matters <laughs> all right jj you're up
1: I, Tommy, I want to pick Con Air here so bad just to spite you, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I, I got I'm going to go. This is maybe a, a controversial, controversial decision, but I'm going to go with uh, Christopher Nolan pick unsurprisingly. I'm going to go with Inception. And although you don't associate airplanes with Inception, the key plot point is that they have to get uh, Ch- uh, Killian Murphy's character on the airplane under sedation, so that they can operate Inception. So your number one airplane pick is I Inception. Said, I said movies that feature an airplane prominently in the plot.
2: Inception is like a two-hour and forty-five-minute movie. How long is an airplane in the movie for? Like nine seconds?
1: No, they're they're on the plane for twenty-one hours. It's a twenty-one-hour flight from Sydney to LA. What do you think, Bo? <laughs> what's your thought? What's your thought on
2: that
0: pick? I, see, I can see it. I can see it. It will be too damn long, though. That's the biggest way issue Way too here. long.
2: Way too long. Number one. This I thought this would have been the consensus. Number one. Air Force One. Air Force One, great rewatchable. Harrison Ford at his peak. That's my number one. That's up there. Number two, I'm taking Con Air. Close to a perfect movie. I have to say, though, about... I watched uh, The Rock last night. Yeah. The Bruckheimer... Um, I'm like, what... Does not hold up. Really, I did not think it held up at all. First of all, talk about moving way too long. It's like a th- it's like a three hour movie. It's like watching Gone with the Wind. It's just all over the place. I don't know well, when the last time you guys it. It's a Michael Bay it. movie. It's a Mike- but it's really <laughs> so, a Michael Bay movie. No, it's, it's like really-
0: yeah. They like, so tell t- t- this thing about cod air though. It is a rollicking good time, but holy smokes, this is, it's a wildly racist film. I had it here on my list also. But when you go back and there's that scene where uh, John Malkovich says to David Chappelle, if you think I'm worried about some two-bit Negro, and I'm like, that ain't what the script said. I know for a fact that's not what the script said. John Malkovich was just like, nah, dog, I'm not going down this road.
2: It's amazing watching Chappelle back in that point of his life when he was just picking up random roles. Yes. Had he even put a special out at that point or no?
0: No, that's after he did Robin Hood men in tights in like 92 or 93. And it like sold a couple of nonsensical, like, like, this is like 96. I want to say con area. So he's in the nutty yeah, 96,
2: 97. It was like, he did half baked around then. Yes. And then he did blue streak. He did. There was another thing where he had this like a little bit role and you're kind of like, wait, is that, is that Dave Chappelle?
0: Right. He was just getting all where he could get all. Yeah. He was in life. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right,
1: Jay, you're up. I don't think this will be controversial at all. Ex- executive decision. Kurt Russell. I never saw it. You never saw executive decision?
2: No. Have you seen it, Bo?
0: I have not seen executive decision. It, at first, oh I my, thought you were going to talk yeah, about Indy's proposal, which I have seen.
1: <laughs> Our ba- the basic plot is um, there's a group of terrorists that take over a plane that's bound for Washington, I believe, and they send in special forces and the special forces get on the plane in the middle of the air from another airplane um, and it's Kurt Russell's character, and he's got to like. When did this come out? Uh, maybe like ninety, yeah, ninety three, ninety four, ninety five, somewhere around there.
0: Yeah, Holly Berry, Berry, was in it. Yeah. yeah, it came out during a run of movies with titles like *Indecent Proposal* and *Executive Decision*. <laughs> like, like if you see what the third Naked Gun movie where they have the they do the fake Oscars, and that's one of the jokes is all these movies have the same name. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: I'm. A, this is this feels like. This is the time uh, where we can catch up on all these things. So this feels like a movie to watch like next week. You should watch it. And I also, I,
1: I actually, I'm, I'm curious. One of, the, one of the movies on my, on my list, I actually rewatched uh, two nights ago. I'm curious if anybody's going to take it. It's, I'm not going to oh, take it, but oh, I'm, you got, I'm oh, curious you got if anybody's going to take it.
0: All right. Well, hopefully I will psychically figure out what it is. But with this next pick, I am going to go with Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Interesting. That was the Die Hard that had it. uh, the plane where Bruce Willis was trying to land it, but instead the landing gear didn't come down and it crashed and burned right there on the runway? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, cool. Got my Die Hards right. Every now and then you can mix these things up. Got that right. (laughs) So we're going to go with the Die Hard series. And I am not even like super movie guy or super action movie guy. And I think I missed the bad Die Hard movie. But those first three... You're gonna have a hard time, like coming up with a more entertaining trilogy than the first three Die Hard movies. I, would I agree with that, and the third was the that. best. But neither here nor there. Um, the next one I am going to take. I mean, this may be a little cliche, but I mean, can I take Airplane? I feel like I <sighs> want to take Airplane. That was the movie. But I lay down to the bone, <laughs> checking me up. It holds up. <laughs> it really does. It holds up. It's it
2: is Airplane and Naked Gun. I feel like have have completely held up to this day.
0: Well, let me ask you this: When's the last time you watched the Naked Gun?
2: Probably a year ago.
0: An underrated part of the Naked Gun is a lot of the jokes are about how it's impossible to ki- to fire a police officer for killing somebody. Oof. like if you like, I went. By, I saw watched it about a year and a half ago, and it's not even subtle. It's very explicit. That it's just like, yeah. yo, we, you know, it won't
2: fire a cop <laughs> just, for anything. He's just mowing down everybody. <laughs> and yes, gonna happen. <laughs>
1: What was the movie what was the movie that was the the uh, parody of the fugitive Wh- which one was that called Wrongfully Accused Is that it's what it wrongfully is accused? Wrongfully yes. Accused okay Third I'm going to go um I'm going to go Home Alone I was thinking about this one Yeah Home Alone it's just a classic movie I can watch it with my kids my oldest calls it boy alone but <laughs> obviously flying across the Atlantic Ocean on an airplane uh was the impetus for them not being able to Quickly go back and grab their son.
2: Well, that was also that was also back when. a oh, Home Alone Two was when he first flies to New York. That's back when you could yeah. get on the wrong plane without a ticket.
1: That's yeah, pre, which I did. I did pre, multiple uh, times in AAU. Like I would go <laughs> to these AAU tournaments and I'd get on the wrong plane. They'd be like, "All right, we're gonna go to San Fe," and I'd be like, "What the fuck? I gotta get off the plane." <laughs> <laughs> And then 9-11 happened. That's 9/11. also
0: back when you could go that far along and not notice that you didn't have your kid and you couldn't just call them. Like yeah. the, the no cell phone thing was a whole different life.
2: You know what I was thinking about Home Alone the other day is Joe Pesci is, it's like having a guy like that in a movie like that is so funny to think about in retrospect because it's just like, that. this is your, Pesci makes fellows. I mean, Goodfellas is great. The whole everything about Goodfellas is great, but I think Pesci's the best part of Goodfellas, and I think he's also the best part of Casino. And so this is kind of like your this is the Scorsese actor of the '90s, and he's just the bad guy in this in this Christmas movie for kids. And
0: low key playing the exact same character that he plays yes. in all the other movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's a perfect casting. Perfect casting. Yeah. yeah, I watched Casino the other night, and one. I also read up on the dude that, that, was, that he was basically playing and like, oh, great job, Joe Pesci. This sounds like exactly that guy, right? But it was wild to watch it and realize, so yeah, he's the same guy as he is in Goodfellas, but it is not the same performance. And I can't tell you why it's not the same performance, but it is not the same performance. Even after you put the ballpoint pen in the dude's neck, he's still somehow not exactly the guy in Goodfellas.
2: Imagine Joe Pesci in like a rom-com. Good question. As I was like a, as, a, yeah, as just like a love interest.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: the, thing is, the thing is he would have to be a reformed version of this character. He couldn't he there's no way he could have been something different.
1: I think that's a pitch. We need to we need to pitch that, Tommy. Yeah, I think I, I think we I think that's we should Tommy do has a very loose interpretation of what is and isn't a rom com. I don't I know. Think many things, I think many this, things are wrong. That rom-coms. also
0: means he has a loose interpretation of what is and isn't romance. No, <laughs>
1: well,
2: this is this is a deeper conversation, but <laughs> meet the parents. So the scene at the end of the movie is my third pick. Scene at the end of the movie where he tries to get on the plane and he gets into the fight with the stewardess and he starts yelling bomb on the plane. Oh, yeah. So there's two parts. There's two airplanes. There's two airport airplane scenes in that movie that are amazing. First, it's Ben Stiller's character. He breaks up with his fiance, super depressed, flying home, goes to the airport. He's the only person in the airport. And they do the scene where he's in like he's in uh, group four or whatever it is. There's no one else around him. Call group one. No one else looking around. Doesn't doesn't board the plane. Call group two. No one else around him. Doesn't board the plane. They call group three. He goes up there. They won't let him on. So like the, between that and then the bomb, 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 bomb. It's it is. I think it's the best part of that movie. I think it's a really good movie. So that's my number three.
1: Is that part of the plot? Yes. Yeah. It's definitely part of the plot. Yeah, Prom, pro, is it a prominent part of the plot? I think it's... Because it, the it plot to me was him... Yeah, but you know, he he had to
2: fly to meet the parents and then he was flying home and it's part of the plot for sure. What do you think, Bo? I mean, we're counting it regardless, but... Yeah, I mean,
0: it's a good movie, so I'll let you have it. You know, yeah. I understood that there was going to be a measure of stretching in order to make this happen, so I'm not going to judge you.
2: I'm not putting this on my list, but I have a question. What's the verdict on Soul Plane?
0: I was going to pick Soul playing in this draft just because every draft needs a bust.
2: So this, I was thinking, I was thinking, So I, I, let's wait. You should, I'm not going to pick it. So yeah. you can pick it and I'm, we yeah, can have good. a conversation that's then. That's good. My fourth one is uh, Catch Me If You Can. Ooh. Oh, good call. I, think a, I think it's a great movie and I think also holds up really well.
0: That's DiCaprio is the con man, right? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to, that was, that was going to actually be my That's next the choice. rare like
2: two hour, 45 minute movie that you're not watching. you watching the clock. I'm going with Red Eye. Have you guys is, that seen the, is that the is that the one with uh, Cillian Murphy where he sits next to Rachel McAdams? On the yeah.
1: Pl- yeah. Oh yeah. So many terrible one-liners this in this movie. I mean, the dialogue is fucking awful. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar. Basically, Rachel McAdams is flying across the country on a red eye. This dude sits next to her. They start flirting. Sooner or later, she realizes that he's basically a terrorist, and they've kidnapped her father back in you know the new york area wherever she lives and she's got to do a series of things for him in order for them to release the father and there's a couple lines in there about a nine inch k bar and he looks at her deadpan he's like it's a knife lisa (laughs) and i just for some reason i just fucking love that line
2: well he's just one of those actors i even i don't even know if he's a good actor he just has such a creepy look that it works i mean that's that's
1: not a very nice thing to say about someone
2: I mean, it is what it is. He, 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 was, he was in the movie for a reason. It is what it is.
0: I mean, that's I Christopher Walken's whole everything, yeah, right? that's it. That's true. That's true. Steve Buscemi. All right. Yes. Yes, that's what I was thinking also. All right. Um, I'm going to throw Argo out here. Best oh, picture. my. Wow. Oh, yeah. That's a good How one.
1: How did I forget about I knew I was going to forget about something.
0: So here's the problem I got with Argo. I don't know just how good Argo was I think it was very good but I watched Argo on a plane and I want to ask you guys this because my brother and I have talked about this and I just need to know if anybody else has this issue do you find yourself getting really emotional watching movies on planes in a way that you don't on the ground Yes.
2: I think there's okay. a, I think there's a, uh, there's been studies on this. Okay.
0: I feel better. Yeah, knowing it's, a real, that.
2: it's a real thing. People cry on planes and movies I all cry. the time. I, I but do, it's not I do, sad I movies. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thank you. I feel so much better. Cause like <laughs> when they're at the airport in Argo and they're trying to get on the plane, you know, like the stress of the airport almost did me in. I think I was flying to Portugal and the stress of that really almost did me in Bohemian Rhapsody. I was damn near in tears on that one, and I'm I'm not that guy. That's not how I'm wired. But you put me on a plane, and all of a sudden, everything just gets jumbling around. And I learned something very important from Argo that I really hadn't considered, which is if you have a revolution to take over a country, you also now have to like take over the airport. Like I had never thought about that. That if you're a merry band of guys decide you're going to take everything over, then it winds up being your buddies that are reading passports at the airport. Like it's just like that was my favorite part of that movie is the random cobbling together of an infrastructure based on the people who just took up arms to win back the country. It's like you
2: just hire the wrong person at the airport.
0: Yeah, like that's who do you so, know that knows how to run an airport? That's,
2: right? so, <laughs> that's so true about the crying on planes though. I've cried in so many movies on planes that are not sad. That, <laughs> when it would not, have not affected me in the slightest if I was, was not on a plane.
1: My wife does not cry and she cries on airplanes every time she watches a movie. It's just, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I'll cry watching a movie on the team plane. Like, I'll be watching something, and it'll be like, Ken Rich Williams next to me. He's like, yo, you okay? And I'm like, yeah, no, I'm fine, man. <laughs> fine. <laughs> just watching a movie. All right, uh, fifth pick. Let's see what we got here. Surprisingly, oh. Our bow's up. No, yeah. we got one more. Oh, I I bow's got got one more.
0: I got yeah, two in, in a row. More. That's right. I am going to go with the all-time classic, planes, trains, and automobiles. All right. Hard to argue. This was a, John Candy. John yes. Candy? Yeah.
2: Bo just had a surgical draft of five just straight good movies that also fit the format. <laughs> this never happened. We don't, we
0: can't criticize any of these picks.
2: <laughs> that is just a, that is a, that is a, that is a, uh, it was just a surgical performance.
0: Look, don't thank me. um Thank the little something called Googling movies with airplates. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I did the same thing, and Argo didn't show up, and now I'm I'm mad because Argo would have been now it would have gone around. Right actually, here.
0: Argo dawdled me while we were here. I was like, "Oh shit, I got Argo."
1: My bad. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, my fifth pick. I'm gonna go, so there's a few options here, but I'm gonna actually go back to Christopher Nolan, and I'm gonna go with Dunkirk. Why? Because it's Dunkirk. a great film.
2: Just be, no, because of the because of the warplanes and Tom Hardy. Yeah. yeah, that counts. Yeah, it counts. Definitely counts. That counts. Yeah. I just, yeah, Thanks that counts. That counts. Two Nolan picks in an airplane category seems. Well, I would have picked
1: Interstellar too, but I think the airplane was a stretch as it was more a spaceship that we were really after on that one.
2: All right, I'm closing it out. You know, I had to pick this one. I thought this was going to go earlier. Snakes on a plane.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to go with Top Gun. No, so did
2: you no, actually no. watch Snakes on a Plane? Oh yeah, I watched it right when I watched it in theaters and it came out.
0: Okay, because I did not watch Snakes on a Plane, but I did go see Soul Plane, which we discussed a little bit earlier. Soul and Plane?
2: Well, yeah, let's like, hear it. What do you think about Soul Somehow,
0: plane? not the worst movie I saw that summer.
2: What was the worst movie?
0: Catwoman. <laughs> Catwoman's like, how do you make a to, movie about 2002? Halle Berry in the cat suit and everybody is going to see Halle Berry in the cat suit, and people still walk out furious. Woman, I went, uh, I went to go see that with. She looked at me and said, "I'm no longer allowed to pick the movie." I've mm-hmm. never had a woman say that to me before in my life. That's how bad cat woman was. And so, and Soul Plane was better than that one.
2: the f- The funny thing about a movie like Soul Plane is thinking about the process of it getting made, like all the people that had to green light this and them spending all the time on set just it's such a ridiculous premise like if that was a sketch or something like that and it took like two days to do then it kind of makes sense but like they probably shot that movie for like three months it spent it spent like 50 million dollars on it or something well
0: they started with a good idea which is we're going to do a parody of Airplane yeah and then they didn't have another good idea after
2: that. <laughs> and it just turned into just the just party on a plane and that's it. And there's so no way <laughs> no like, and the party. airline
0: was called NWA Airlines. Like yeah, like I need to find out who wrote that. Because that's what made it worse. Is the farther we went, I was like, did a black person even write this? Are there any black people in the room? I think that's Kevin Hart's first movie.
2: Yes. You could be wrong. But yes. it's definitely it was the first thing that i I'd, I'd seen him in.
1: I need to go back and rewatch Soul Plane, because I don't remember it being that bad
2: watch it tonight it's great <laughs> no it's bad, but it's, bad. Great. It's bad but it's great it's bad in
1: theaters i don't remember it being that bad
0: soul plane but, but is maybe a classic. I was just young maybe if I was soul just plane young.
2: is on tv i will watch it it's one of
0: those yeah it like snoops in it isn't method man in it, I I know this method in it man.
1: yeah method man Damn, tom if i'm not arnold. mistaken it has
0: an all-star cast tom arnold is in it <laughs> Yeah, Tom Arnold turns up, you know, because Tom Arnold is the go-to white guy in the Tyler Perry movies. He just turns up in Black World in the strangest ways. There's a weird thing with Tom Arnold's
2: character. I know like his, his daughter is, there's a weird racial dynamic with it. They're the only white people on the plane, and his daughter is just hanging out with, it's a, it's a there's a lot to sort of
0: break down Yo, know, Quietly, that's the role that he's taken on in his life. And listen to all the people that were in Soul Play. I'm going from back to I'm front on the, the Wikicast, Cast. Yeah. Listen. Carl Malone, the Yin-Yang Twins, Lil John, Terry Crews, John Witherspoon, D.L. Hughley, some more, Sofia Vergara, Monique, Lonnie Love, Godfrey. Remember him, the 7-Up guy? Yep. Method Man, Tom Arnold, Snoop Dogg, and Kevin Hart. That's a lot of famous people for That's a terrible That's an all-star. Movie. That's like the Irishman. Yes. All-star st- <laughs> All cast. It's the New Harlem Knights, except it's not.
1: Bo, I think you won this draft. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the win on this one.
0: I'll take it. I want to hear though. Tommy actually saw Snakes on the Plane because the only thing I know about Snakes on the Plane that is that even, one yeah. line.
2: It's enjoyable for the first 25 minutes or so, but the whole it's a little bit like watching Soul Plane. It's like you just you're not mad at yourself for watching it because the the entire premise of it is so ridiculous that, and it's also quick. It's a, it's almost like a television episode. Like it doesn't feel like a movie.
0: Yeah, I knew that wasn't going to be a winner. That, that was yeah. just proof also, again, if Samuel L. Jackson don't pass up, no check. You ask him if he want to nope. be it. I, I want to see the list of movies that he said no to.
2: <laughs> De Niro's like the, been like, like that. De Niro's strips. been like that
0: recently too. Yeah, like what does it take for him to be like, nah, I'm above that?
2: There's not,
1: There's not anything.
0: Yeah, I don't blame him. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> like I imagine part of being a movie star that's got to be different is, like I'd be petrified of, doing something that would be terrible and then it's permanent and people can always go see it be terrible. Like at what point in your career do you shake off that idea? Because that's like, I have anxieties about writing because of the permanence of it, right?
2: But this is the the thing is like, who thinks about these people's bad movies? You know, like who thinks about like, like De Niro is a perfect example of, he's made like 10 bad movies in the last five years. But all people talk about is Goodfellas And taxi driver, Irishman recently, like no one is going, no one's holding the bad ones against him once he has the good
1: stuff.
0: Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Unless you're Eddie Murphy and the bad ones are so bad that they are like (laughs) equal parts of what you're doing.
1: Yeah. I also think though, it's like you're not you're not like no one's at what point are you gonna turn down a check for 10 million? Like how much money do you have to have as an actor to be like, nah, I'm good. I don't want to come work for two months for 10 million bucks. This is Right, so I,
0: I'll go make a bad
1: movie for ten million bucks. <laughs> like
0: fuck it. Yeah, I try to remember one of those movies. Somebody asked jb Fox about that, and he was just basically like, "Yo, I cast that check." <laughs>
1: yeah, that's it. Bo, I appreciate the time. You were uh, insightful as always,
0: except except about Steph Curry. Except, um, I- yeah, I was just gonna say, except
1: except for the Steph comments, I think you were pretty much spot on.
0: I Appreciate Um, it, man. Uh, Can I, can I, can I just throw it out there right fast to the people? Check me out Uh, the right time with Bomani Jones uh, wherever you get your podcast. We'll have to do a return engagement at some point. As you know, as as you are, as we all hold up wherever the hell we be and hold up. All right, thank you, man. Dude, no problem. You You guys be good.
1: All right, as always, thank you for listening to the JJ Reddick podcast with Tommy Alter. Once again, I'd like to thank this week's guest, Bilimani Jones. Please check out his podcast, The Right Time, wherever you listen to your podcasts, and you'll hear from him soon. Thank you.